This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of Ajay Banga, CEO of MasterCard. So it was kind of, you know, hey, what are you going to do with your life? And I remember sitting in my study with my feet up on the mantelpiece with probably our second or third glass of wine. I think that's where the courage came from. And I said, you know what? I'm going to think about you. And so having said all that with great bravado, the next morning was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? How Ajay Banga runs one of the world's largest companies with an unusual leadership philosophy, something he calls the decency quotient. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, think about some of the most celebrated CEOs of the recent past and even the present. They're often described as uncompromising visionaries, demanding, provocative, but brilliant. But what we don't often hear about are qualities that Ajay Banga considers much, much more important. Decency, respect, and being kind. Because to Ajay, this is how to be a successful leader. And in the time he's been running MasterCard, the company has indeed been successful. Ten years ago, its market cap was about $30 billion. And today, it's closer to 230. And while most of us might think of MasterCard as a credit card company, MasterCard thinks of itself as a technology company, a company that handles the processing of all sorts of transactions, from the matcha tea latte you bought this morning to the massive payments that governments make. Now, as you'll hear, Ajay's success at MasterCard actually has its roots in his childhood. He was born in Pune in India in 1960, just 13 years after India's independence from Great Britain. And he first learned about leadership from watching his dad, who was in the Indian Army. My father was among the first uh, graduates of the independent India Indian Military Academy and then served many years at the Indian Army and retired as a three-star general in 1980-something, so 35-plus years in the Army. Wow. Was he, a pretty, was he a pretty strict father? No. He was a very interesting guy. Strict in the sense he was very particular about certain things, timing, keeping your word, caring about people. Fascinating. I, I've said this story in a couple of places, but he could relate to the guard at our 
gate of our big house in Sikandrabad, in Hyderabad. We used to live in this huge house and with a big compound. And on the way out, he would talk to the army guard at the gate with the same interest in his eyes as I saw him talking to a visiting general from a different country or his boss or somebody else who was a colleague of his. And I think that's the single most important lesson I got from him was that, yes, it's important to be on time. Yes, it's important to care about stuff. But it's really important to connect to people at every level because that's where you'll get the tips and information and knowledge from and the ability to be a better person. That, I would say, he put into me very clearly. So as a kid, it sounds like you moved around a lot, depending on where your dad was posted. Indeed. And um, and so did that affect you in any way? Did that bother you? Because presumably you were going to different schools every few years. Uh, I actually think I came out better for my experiences of multiple moves in so many ways. I lived in different parts of India, and it can be quite different where you live. It's almost like a bunch of different cultures, languages, food, religions in those different places. And in, that's India. Secular India is a, is a very complex uh, sort of basket weave of all of these. And living in those different places actually gets you to respect those differences in a way that I don't think I could have got just from education. I, I actually view my opportunity to move many times as a blessing. Yeah, I want to touch on the diversity a a bit more because in India, there are obviously a bunch of different religions, right? There's Hinduism, Islam, Sikhism, Christianity. And I mean, Indians have a self-image of living in general harmony, right? And there's obviously with all that diversity. Did you experience that harmony or or do you think that might be a little bit of a myth? No, no, I actually uh, have spoken about this a few times that growing up in India, you take diversity for granted. Hmm. Uh, it's now it's a certain kind of diversity. So let me explain that in the sense that, as you just described, religious diversity, ethnic diversity, you know, all different looks and feels, food is different, uh, what you wear is different. But, you know, I growing up in the army in particular with my dad and then in India as a whole, you kind of take diversity for granted. I used to go for Christmas midnight mass and go to... Uh, mosques to celebrate Eid and go to Hindu temples to celebrate events. And I didn't know the difference. <laughs> and I took it for completely for granted. And I think it, it comes with you in the way I speak today about, about uh, diversity. I, I think that diversity starts from surrounding yourself with people who don't look like you, don't walk like you, didn't go to the same schools as you, you didn't grow up with them as neighbors. They, they've had a different set of experiences and a different background. And then when you, when you come together at a table, you benefit from the fact that all these people bring these different things to the table and they're different ways of thinking. And if they don't, then you will have the same blind spots. And, and, and we'll get to talking about MasterCard a bit later, but I just want to touch on this idea really quickly because when you got to MasterCard in 2010, you were different. I mean, you looked different than a lot of the other executives at the top of Fortune 500 companies. <laughs> yeah, I, I look like Osama bin Laden is what people would tell you. I mean, for, for people who don't know what you look like um, – can you describe what you look like? Yeah, I'm a Sikh uh, with a turban and a full beard and uh, in better shape now than I was 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so really, I mean, you kind of grew up in this environment, not even realizing that it was diversity because it was just it was just the normal state of things. 
But clearly, that would have a huge impact on the way you saw your role as a leader. I would say it has an impact in the sense that you want to make sure that the place you work at, the people you work with, the culture you care about is one where you respect people not for what they look like and where they came from, but you respect them for what they do and how they do it. And if you can believe in that, I, it's very easy to say what I just said, but if you really believe in this deep inside you, which I think a lot of particularly young people of today's generation actually believe in this, they really care about what you do and how you do it, then I, you, know, you see why I'm generally an optimistic guy about diversity. So, all right, so you get, you get through college and you, you did an MBA degree uh, in India and then you go and work for Nestle, the, the food, com- food and drink company in, in India. And at that point, did you have a vision of what you wanted to be? No. I just wanted to do well and have a good life. And, and you know, I was growing up pre-Google. I mean, you went to Encyclopedia Britannica to get your information those days. And you had to have volumes of the stuff. And it was expensive to buy. And my parents saved money to buy it for me. And I used to devour them. And uh, that is my knowledge base. And uh, India was still relatively closed in the sense of foreign companies were either operating like Nestle through a lot of local ownership or uh, were not there. They weren't present. And, uh, you know, Coca-Cola had gone from the country. There was no Pepsi, no Coke. As an example, no McDonald's, no. Nothing that you would take for granted in many parts of the world. And so my knowledge base was relatively small, but I knew this much that I wanted to be in a global company that would give me a chance to see the world and also learn from people with different experiences. Just reading what I used to read and listening to people made me excited about that. And that's all I knew. I had no clue about what ladder I would climb and where I would reach or not reach. And I honestly didn't. None at all. So you were working for this company, uh, this Indian division of Nestle. And I mean, this is the, in the 1980s, I mean, this is like sort of pre-liberalized India, yes. right? I mean, this is sort of like really regulated India, pre-globalized world. So presumably you were only focused on the Indian market. At that time, completely. And um, for a number of years, that's the case. I mean, we used to meet a number of uh, global managers of Nestle. And somebody I ascribe a great deal of my uh, learnings to was a guy called Barry Ryan, who's Irish and still lives in Ireland and is in touch with me. He lives in Cork and he's a wonderful man. He had the ability to draw you into a conversation no matter what level you were at. That just was, he always wanted your opinion. And then he would say, I don't know if I agree with you. How about this? And I think you should think about this. And that way of dealing with me at a very young age gave me a lot of confidence. The guy was 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 able to connect. So you, you end up at Nestle for 13 years from 1981 into the early 1990s. Um, did you think that your career, your entire life career, would basically be at Nestle? At a point of time, I did. My first seven, eight, ten years, I thought I'd be there for the next 30 years. And my ambition was to become Barry Ryan for India, the managing director hmm. of India. That's my, my, the lens I was looking at the world with. And um, somewhere into my eighth or ninth year, he gave me a terrific break to leapfrog into a role and become the head of the eastern region of Nestle. Kind of trusted me, and he said, I think you'll make a difference. Hmm. 
And I think I did a really good job for the next three, four years there. I, I enjoyed it. I would consider it to be one of the roles where I learned a great deal, where I had hundreds of people working for me across the complex geography. I had 48% of the company's revenue coming into my region. I wow. learned how to deal with all kinds of interesting circumstances. And then, you know, I, I began to think of where I would go next and what I would do next. And I remember meeting people at Nestle, at senior management, uh, who once said to me, and I looked up at them, other Indians who had progressed, and they basically, none of them had become the country manager of India, but they had become country managers of other countries, and I couldn't see them breaking through the ceiling adequately. Hmm. And remember, again, pre-Google, someone told me that American companies were more open to the idea of, uh, of allowing you to progress no matter where you came from. That's all I knew. And the funny part was, I still thought Nestle was the best company. And I'm, you can see from my conversation, I still think it's a, just an outstanding organization. But not knowing any better and listening to people who told me this, I jumped off the deep end into Pepsi, which was entering India at that time in 94 hmm. to start the restaurant business. You know, those days they used to own KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell as part of their businesses. So I joined them saying it's an American company. They'll probably let me do more things. That's how, that is the sum total of my decision-making. Hmm. So you're in your early 30s. You join Pepsi. You help them launch Pizza Hut and KFC in India. But you only last two years before you're, you go to Citigroup. What, what happened? Did they recruit you? Did you get <laughs> sick of it? Did you say, I don't want to do no, pizza and chicken no. anymore? No, no. Great question. Great question. I was actually about a year and a half, almost two years into my time at Pepsi. The guy who recruited me, and ran uh, the Pepsi restaurant business in Asia, left. Hmm. And he uh, he did let me know that most likely the company was going to spin out from inside of Pepsi and become an independent unit, the restaurant business. And, you know, I didn't want to be a part of that. I had joined Pepsi to be a part of this global franchise. That's the, you know, that's what I had in my eyes and my vision and my heart. Remember Nestle, then Pepsi, and I didn't want to be part of a smaller company that may well be owned by franchisees mm. in different countries, which was the PepsiCo restaurant model in many countries. I wanted to work for this global company. Yeah. And so I, I felt very unsettled by that. And then I get this encounter with uh, the gentleman who ran Citigroup's businesses in Central Europe, Middle East, Africa, including India a chance encounter. And that's what led to uh, my getting interested in the consumer bank at City. And I got a chance to meet some really interesting people there and realized that City's consumer bank actually had terrific consumer marketing people joining them. And again, with that much information, yet again, I took a plunge, <laughs> trying to get away from this franchisee future that I didn't want into another American company with a large global footprint which seemed to value my background. And I'm never scared of changing industries. It's just, to me, uh, you know, people make a lot about Nestle versus Pepsi versus City or how these are different industries. And mm. it's just share of consumer. It's share of consumer in packaged foods. It could be share of throat, share of wallet, share of mind. You have to just think like a consumer or a customer, and a lot becomes easier. I was willing to take that plunge. Yeah. All right. So in 1996, you decide to join Citigroup. If I have my, my timeline right, up until this point, your entire career was still in India, right? 
That is correct. So I'm, I'm interested because I'm thinking from the perspective of these corporations, they're looking at you and they're thinking, this is a rising star. This is the person that can represent us in India. But I have to imagine that you're thinking, okay, I've, I've had a great career in India. I want to I run things in other countries. Were you thinking that at that point? No. So till now, I had actually turned down a couple of opportunities to go overseas in my prior two jobs mm. because I remember... My vision was living in India and becoming the boss of this big global company uh, right. in India. Right. And uh, and my parents were in India and my wife's parents were in India and all our family was mostly in India. A few people had moved overseas, but I was still very content about growing in India in my in my vision. It's only at City in my first few months I joined there. Oh boy, that was like a life-changing experience. And I spent two and a half, three months living in London and traveling around all of Central Europe, Middle East and Africa, kind of understanding our business and what we could do. And those days, the CEO of uh, City was John Reed. And I got a chance to go and present to him. I came back saying, boy, this is cool. I'd love to do this. And literally a month later, I got offered this chance to move to London and I leapt at it. So you joined Citibank in marketing, you then, a few years down the road, are promoted to head up City Financial. Eventually, you head the retail bank in North America. You're climbing the ranks. 2005, head of Citigroup's International Consumer Banking. 2008, you oversee all of the bank's businesses in Asia. Did you, in in your mind, have ambitions to be CEO? Did you Was a part of you thinking, I think I want to do that? <laughs> For the first 10, 11 years of my days at City, no. Hmm. I just had this, you know, one break after the other. And, you know, and I tell this as advice to everybody, uh, don't overplan your career and don't overdo this. Just take things as they come. I never said no, by the way, through all my career to a transfer that my bosses suggested to me. Never. You see young people today, the best advice I can give them is take the break that comes your way. Your boss is doing it for a reason. Hmm. And so when I say I was lucky, life is 50% luck, being in the right place at the right time. The other 50% is what you do with that luck. You can let it pass you by like a train leaving the station, or you can get on the train and have a ride. And that's what I mean about luck. Luck in a context of you got to seize your luck, but it's got to come your way. Clearly, they were preparing me to be a possible candidate, one of some, to be a next CEO at one day. Absolutely, they were. But of course, in 2009, you get a call, I guess, uh, from MasterCard, and they say, hey, we want you to come be our chief operating officer. Is that is that how it happened? No, actually. So in um, 07, 08, 09 were really tough years in the banking industry, if you remember. Sure. And, and, uh, and I was doing this in Asia and actually growing the franchise in Asia during those years. And somewhere along the line, you know, I was going to be, I was 49, I think. And I kind of sat back with my wife and said, hey, what do you want the next 10 years to be? I think men, when they get close to 50, go a little crazy about the next 10 <laughs> years. And and I was getting there. And, uh, and my wife and I sat. She's been my constant leader and partner through this. I mean, honestly, you imagine how many times we've moved. And, and we were classmates at business school. So without her, I wouldn't be half the person I am. And I sat with her and we took a sheet of paper and we wrote the pros and cons of staying on in a bank and becoming the CEO of a bank and maybe city. And I kind of looked at those pros and cons and said, well, 
it's not bad. I'd love to do this. It's a dream I never had when I came, but boy, wouldn't this be cool? Meanwhile, the CEO at that time, Vikram Pandit, who was doing a terrific job, was young. And so I couldn't see him leaving for any years. And I said, wow, I'm not getting any younger. So it was kind of, you know, hey, what are you going to do with your life? And if you want to be a CEO, are you going to wait here till you're much older? Or would you like to take a break? And are you mentally ready for it? And I felt I was. That's <laughs> when I began to realize I wanted to be the boss of something myself. <laughs> And I remember coming back, I was in, in New York for a trip with my wife and sitting in my study with my feet up on the mantelpiece with probably our second or third glass of wine each. And I think that's where the courage came from. And I said, you know what? I'm going to think about leaving. And so having said all that with great bravado, the next morning was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then along came this opportunity with MasterCard. You know, it's interesting because I think... If you hear a story of a of an executive leaping from one executive role to a different executive role, our instinct is to think, okay, what's a big deal? But it is actually scary, right? Because you <laughs> knew everybody at City at City. They yeah. knew you. You were yeah. integrated into the culture there. You had a reputation. There's a big risk going to a new company, even as an executive, where you might not fit in and you might not last long. Absolutely, absolutely, but. Remember, without risk, there is no reward. And the question is, are you willing to take the right kind of risk with the right moral compass? And you've got to be willing to give yourself the chance at each stage of your life. I don't want to, life's too short. I don't want to look back and say, oh, God, if only I had done that. That's not what I want to be. I want to look back and feel good about the things I've done and feel good about the impact I've had and feel good about the people I've worked with. I have a few regrets about things I made mistakes with, but... Generally, you want to feel good, right? Mm. And so, risks are important. They're a part of finding a way to feeling good. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. 
If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. So it's 2009, and Ajay Banga is already a seasoned executive. He's held leadership roles at Pepsi and Citigroup. But now he's facing his biggest challenge yet. He becomes the COO of MasterCard, the number two position, with an understanding that he'll soon become CEO. And one year later, he does. And while he says MasterCard was pretty stable, it was also due for some changes. Oh, I, I think the company had enormous assets, uh, you know, like a moat around its castle kind of thing with good walls, to be able to feel relatively stable. My predecessor had taken the company public globally. So I think he'd done a pretty good job of building the place. And uh, I think my opportunity was, where do I take it from there? And I came into this company that that got the majority of its revenue from credit-related payments. Remember, we, we don't issue an account or whatever, but we're the infrastructure that things ride on, payment rails. And so we used to get the majority of our revenue from credit-related payments, a little bit from debit, a little bit from commercial, and a little bit from a few services we provided banks. Now you go forward 10 years, and we get 27% of our revenue from services. We're the world's largest loyalty and rewards provider. We provide cybersecurity services to countries and companies and banks and merchants. We do processing of issuers and acquirers, processing of transactions. We do uh, data analytics and, uh, and uh, consulting and payments. That's all 27%. We're now seen as a company that's doing technology and innovation and data and analytics and AI and cybersecurity. And most importantly, as a company that is making a difference to inclusive growth. And I, that is a different company that we have built, all of us together in the company, some 50% of it luck and some 50% of it what we did with our luck. I want to I I understand what it was like when you got to MasterCard. Here, here, all of a sudden, there's a new boss coming from City, a new culture. Um, was it different? Was it strange? What, what, did you, what did you notice about how MasterCard felt just as a, as a, as a culture? Well, I felt very different. It was even though it was a global company in the sense that we operated in you know a lot of countries around the world, it was a very U.S. centric company in its culture. Whereas City was by nature of the beast a global organization with a very mm. developed cadre of managers who had lived and worked in many countries overseas. That is not the case at Mastercard. We were different. It's a very different company. What I think we're trying to move towards is a culture. We define that inside the company as a winning culture with decency at its core. What I mean by that is, I want to win, trust me, we're competitive. You can hear that in the way I'm speaking about the company. But I want to win it the right way. And I want to win it not just by telling all my managers and people uh, that, you know, IQ and EQ is interesting. you got to bring your DQ to work. And your DQ is your decency quotient. So 
What do I mean by that? It's the environment you create for people around you, above you, and below you to succeed. It's the it, it's the hand on your back, not in your face feeling that people who work with you and for you should have. It's the feeling of if I need help at three o'clock in the morning, I'm going to call Ajay. That culture, this winning culture with decency at its core, is kind of what we're building. Is is the idea of a decency quotient because it's, it's an interesting idea. Is it, is it the same thing as kindness? No, that's a very, very good question. I think being nice and kind is different from being fair and transparent. They don't have to be different. You could be both. You could be fair, transparent, kind, and nice. Don't get me wrong. You don't, these are not opposite ends of a spectrum. But if you don't understand the difference, then they are opposite ends of the spectrum. Because the easiest way to deal with an individual who works for you who isn't living up to their potential or isn't doing the right thing or isn't being part of the decency quotient is to avoid the confrontation and give them good feedback because you're a kind person and you don't want to hurt them. Sure. On the other hand, I'm not sure that's the right thing or that's the fair thing or the transparent thing for the person. If you actually made the effort to teach them and take every experience as a learning and teaching experience, you might actually improve them and give them a chance to then next time seize that luck that comes their way and become something more. You know, I think that makes you both kind and fair and transparent because kindness is not avoiding a difficult conversation. Kindness is caring enough about the person to invest in them. But I wonder whether in in the way you operate and the way you interact with your team and your subordinates, because obviously they're people who report to you, um, do you do you think about the idea of kindness in your interactions? Yes, I think about it every day and every moment because. I tell people you have to bring your heart and your mind to work because leadership is a privilege. You're not born with this God-given right to have somebody report to mm. you. And, uh, and when those people report to you, they look up to you for guidance and help and constructive collaboration and feedback and ways to become a better person because you did that when you looked up to somebody and you owe it to them. And the only way you can do that is if you have the kindness to give them the message the right way, but the strength of mind to give it to them. Hmm. But I try. I try every day. You know, there's a there's a there's a model of of sort of leadership among certain types of CEOs. Let's say the type A, the fist pounding, you know, uh, type in the boardroom saying, We're gonna win, we're gonna beat beat everybody, you know, the, the sort of super aggressive a uh, charismatic leader. And that's a model. And that's a model that, that definitely has worked and has been studied and still exists. I've interviewed some people like that. I wonder whether you think that model is more effective than a more deliberative, quiet model. Yeah. So those don't have to be two extremes. I mean, deliberative doesn't necessarily have to be quiet. Mm. Deliberative can still be fairly wanting to build a winning culture, right? You know what I mean? That's still deliberative. You could, it's not just operating from, from guts at the heat of the moment because that's the opposite of deliberative. But quiet and deliberative don't necessarily go together hand in hand. You can be, 
you can be extroverted and involving and love the presence of people and care deeply about people and bring your heart and mind to work and still be deliberative. And, and I think that, to me, is an interesting in-between model that, that I find works for my kind of space. Hmm. Somebody once asked me, what kind of values do you live by in the kind of management style you'd like to have? And I felt you could have a sense of urgency. There's one angle to that. But the other angle to that is, in the same breath, if you're not a good listener to everybody, above you, below you, around you, beside you, and to your competitors and investors and others, you're never going to be thoughtful about the risks you're taking. And so to me, uh, to me, sort of having a sense of urgency but the willingness to listen are not naturally contradictory. They just mean that you should listen, gather your information as soon as you can, and then move on with it because that's where the risk-reward arbitrage will lead you to a possible victory and some failures along the way. So that's kind of one key component of the management style. Mm. Another key component is that you have to, therefore, be willing to take thoughtful risks because the willingness to take a thoughtful risk is what will allow you to build a business. And the question is whether you know, you look left and right before you cross the road or you rush out madly into the middle of it because you think you're invincible. And the third part of that, therefore, is you have to empower people to want to do what you just described. And you have to be willing to hold them accountable for it in the right way. And once you kind of get this peculiar bunch of contradictions right in your head, you can find a pretty good North Star to work with. You know, I wonder how, so, you know, you look at your career, right? And you've had all these successes and then you get to MasterCard and, and I don't know, you doubled or quadrupled or or quintupled the earnings or, or, or value or whatever it is. And everyone uh, says, look, this guy is a genius. He has uh, done all this. And, and in many cases, it's natural for humans to start believing this about themselves. When everyone is telling you, you're so great, you're a genius, look at all you've done. And then you become, quote unquote, the smartest guy in the room, that that your subordinates don't necessarily want to contradict you because you have this record of success. But that's dangerous. How do you how do you make sure that you don't you know, you don't fall into that trap? <laughs> you haven't met my wife and daughters. <laughs> that's clearly in your question, the absence of knowing what they're like. Boy, if you come and spend a little time with them, you would ask that question very differently. But even in office, I would say if you have the willingness to do what I talked about, that listening, so you get people to come back to you, you will get the signals that tell you, sometimes directly, sometimes not so directly, that, hey, boss, you're teetering on the edge of idiocy here. Which, by the way, all of us do. I, I am... I'm certain that over the course of a month, I'm in, I'm in idiotic territory at least five, seven, ten times. Mm. Well, I'm going to test you, sir. What, what is it, what's an idiotic idea that you've had where, that, where, where someone's pushed back and you've said, yeah, you're right, that was, that was idiotic? <laughs> no, they've pushed back even after I've wasted the money. You know, <laughs> I went very early in this game when I was trying to get the company into becoming more thoughtful about its digital innovation and space and capability to keep pace. Uh, there was an e-commerce shop in New York that was doing some really interesting work, and I wanted to learn from them, and I thought that I could become 
really smart with them. And we paid them an ungodly sum of money at that time to become their partner, all of which I had to write off over the course of the next two years. And that is just one example. I've, I've done acquisitions, which I haven't done a good job of executing on, and I've had to take a write-off on a couple of those. On the other hand, we've done others which have been, you know, knocked out of the park kind of things. So oh, between the board and my CFO and people who work with me, there are enough people who will remind me of the mistakes I've made. Do you ever lose sleep over those failures? Do you ever kick yourself or do you just kind of roll with it and keep moving forward? I sleep very well. If you are generally optimistic about life, and I am, and if you are willing to, you know, roll with your luck and remember, keep your feet on the ground and just remember that there are more people around you who know more than you do about most things, you'll be fine. You'll sleep well. There are a lot of people looking out for your sleep when you're the boss. So, obviously, I've read a lot about you and and, um, virtually, you know, no knocks on you, at least in, in the public domain. But I want to ask you... <laughs> Again, you heard about my wife and kids. <laughs> I'm going to keep you away from them. <laughs> I want to ask you to give yourself a performance review. And if you were giving yourself a harsh or critical performance review with positive stuff too, what what would you say the knock on Ajay Banga is? What, where, where would you sort of ding him? Oh, I... I uh... I think that I'm always dinging myself on being slow on getting things done. So the opposite side of urgency and listening is that I'm not sure I get that balance right. And so like everybody else, I go through doubts when I'm taking a decision. And I'm confronted with contradictory facts being presented to me by people I trust on both sides of that contradiction. And, you know, like everybody else, I will procrastinate on some of those. And and I look back on a couple of those things and, you know, I feel like, boy, that took much longer. And and how much of that is my fault as compared to somebody else's? So, you know, you'll find I feel that way about some things. I had one of those conversations yesterday, for example, where I think I spent three years tinkering about on a certain topic that if I'd made up my mind on in the first year, I think the company would have been in a much stronger place. Hmm. So that happens. I think that this procrastination and this fear of standing at the edge and sometimes looking down and getting a fear of heights is, it's a real challenge every once in a while. Yeah, but I mean, how do you solve that? Because that seems like a natural human tendency to be cautious. So do you just... Do you just kind of live live with that and kind of accept yeah, that, that as, a, as a flaw? Or I don't know. If I knew how to do that, I wouldn't be telling you it's an issue. Right? <laughs> I just don't know yet. I don't know yet. And I don't know that I ever will. I, look, I've been working for since 1981 without a break, right? So this is 38 years. And, uh, and I would tell you I don't know how to fix that yet. It, it's one of those things. You know, I'm willing to to take risks. I'm willing to, you could see that from the career changes, the move around the world, taking wife, family, kids in tow. Uh, it's not, this is not easy. It's a, it puts a lot of pressure on your life. It puts a lot of pressure on how you bring up your family and what you do with them and how they interact with you. And you have to make extra effort to make that work. And so you can find your peace and find your balances, but not in everything. And one of those things is the hard one to do is do you take enough risks through every stage and every decision? Ajay, this is a question that I, I ask everybody on, on the program. Um, 
your father was obviously a senior military officer, a three-star general. He 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 had a command and control uh, ability, right, which most CEOs don't have. Um, but clearly, there was leadership in your in your family, in your genes. And I wonder if you think you were born a leader, or do you think that you became one over time? I don't know how to answer that only because I wouldn't know what goes into being born a leader. You know, when you're that small, I do think that there are lots of things that influence you as you grow. And you start taking those things for granted, whether it's this connection with people at different levels I told you that I learned from my dad or the willingness to learn from everybody or I I don't know that I dreamt these up. I think they came to me through watching. I don't know if I was born with them. I do know that I have watched people along the years do this and I picked them up from them. And, you know, when I was at City, the merger of City and Travelers happened and Sandy Weil, who ran Travelers, uh, became the co-CEO of the business with John Reed. And I'd never met Sandy. And and then he called me for a meeting to uh, to the U.S. <laughs> he called me to come and make a presentation there. And there was, it was a cocktail in the evening before. There must have been 100 people in there. I didn't know a lot of them because I'd been working overseas. And he saw me across the room. Remember, I stick out. I had turban, beard. Nobody else looked like me. <laughs> and he came through the crowd straight towards me saying hello to people along me, saying, hold on, hold on, comes to me, gives me a bear hug and says, we need more people like you at our management team. And I'm so glad that I met you. Isn't that leadership? I think it is. And I'll never forget that lesson. The ability to connect with someone who was new to you, levels below you, you probably met tons of people like that. And he cared enough to connect with me through this group of people who were probably more important to him in so many ways, more tangibly at that time. So I don't know. I don't know if I was born with it. I don't know whether I picked it up from people. I don't know whether I have the mindset that allows me to pick it up. I don't know if that mindset is my genes or my my learn, learnings or my lessons. I don't know how to answer that. It's, as I said, you got to be in the right place at the right time. I took this right call. I moved in here. We've had a great run. Today, we're at $230 billion market cap, 10 years later. We're among the top 30, 35 companies in the world in terms of market cap globally. And I could never, ever be this young kid growing up in India thinking about this. So I'm telling you with every ounce of my being, that was impossible to the world I saw. That's Ajay Banga, CEO of MasterCard. In recent years, Ajay has led a push for something called financial inclusion, he wants to help provide billions of people living in poverty with access to finances beyond cash, from crowdfunding to digital transactions to small loans. And Ajay says achieving full financial inclusion would be this generation's equivalent of putting a person on the moon. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top for Built It Productions and Luminary Media.